Exodus 1.15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of the one was Shirpra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then you shall, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are lively. Everybody say they're lively. And give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very greatly. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided households for them. Those Hebrew women were very lively, vigorous, healthy. They gave birth quickly and easily, and I would like for us to be a spiritually lively birthing place. I want to talk to you about a lively church. Why don't you applaud the Lord before you're seated and thank Him? You already see it, don't you? Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Favorite words in Pentecost. I love and appreciate you. Thank you for being in church midweek. We got a call from some folks who are fighting traffic, and many of you have had extremely long days. I don't take it for granted that you're sitting here and others that are watching online because they couldn't get to church tonight, uh, and they would have if they could have. But uh, even though there are lots of people here on Sunday that are not here on Wednesday, this is a discipling night. This is family night. This is where... Our church is strengthened in its core so we can then minister to people who are on our extremities and so we can reach out to lost people. That's why we must become a lively church, quickly giving birth to people who are ready to come in to the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people, national Israel, were God's chosen people. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And during a famine, their family moved down to Egypt to sojourn there. And of course, a little time turned into a long time. And special guests turned into slaves. And there arose a Pharaoh in Egypt that did not know Joseph. And for over 400 years, Israel served Egypt in slavery uh, in Egypt. It was a long, long time. The Bible tells us that over this period of time, the Jewish people multiplied and became strong in number and physical strength. Exodus 1 and 7 says that they were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. There were lots of Jewish people being born. And this new king who did not know Joseph looked out and he saw the exploding population of Hebrews, and he said... Uh, there are more of them and they are mightier than we are. So let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and 
Maybe we go to war and they start allying themselves with our enemies and fight with them and uh, they throw us out of the land. So the Pharaoh of Egypt tried to make life miserable for the Hebrews. And the Bible said in Exodus 1.11 on the screens, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. Now I cannot resist this parenthetical sermon right now. Because you need to remember this from Exodus 1 and 12. That the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. It's true in our lives. That the more affliction we're under, the more grace we have from God. And the more the devil tries to fight his church, God's church, the more God blesses his church. Hard times have never slowed revival. Materialism, prosperity, luxury, popularism of the church has slowed growth. But affliction, adversity, trial, and difficulty has never slowed the church from growing and it cannot stop you from serving God. No weapon formed against you will prosper. And the Lord will let the very thing that has been used to attack you to turn against the attacker. The more they afflicted them, the mightier they grew. You need to take that to heart and remember when you're going through hard times and difficulty that God will let it strengthen you, not destroy you. Amen. If you cry out in your affliction, as Israel did to God, He will send you deliverance as He sent them a deliverer in the person of Moses. We know from church history that persecution against the church has always fueled growth. In Acts 5, after persecution, the number of disciples was multiplied. During the persecution of Saul, the believers were scattered and went everywhere preaching the word. Satan has spent 2,000 years trying to destroy God's church. He has been unsuccessful. He will be unsuccessful. The crazier our times get, the stronger the church will get, and the mightier the people of God will be. It may drive us to our knees because of persecution or difficulty or affliction, but it will never destroy the church. Amen. So fear not. As Jesus said, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Amen. So the Egyptians made the Hebrews serve them with rigor. They made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and brick and in all manner of service in the field and their service in which they made them serve with rigor. But... It didn't stop the population explosion. The Jewish people continued to multiply and grow. So Pharaoh called in these two women who seemed to be like the supervisors of all the midwives of all the Israelites because it takes more than two midwives to do the work that was being done in Israel. In Exodus 1 and 15, he calls Shipra in and Puah. Verse 16, 
And he says, now here's what I want all you ladies to do. And there's a Hebrew woman in labor. And she's getting ready to give birth. You be right there. When that baby is born, if it is a little boy, you kill that boy instantly. Infanticide, right? I could liken it to full-term abortion. If he's a boy, you kill him. If it's a girl, save her alive. Well, we'll turn her into a slave. Let her marry one of our boys. It'll make us stronger. That's probably the inference of that. And these midwives had a choice. They could obey the word of the king and kill all the boys, or they could do something else. But the Bible says in verse 17, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them and saved the male children alive. Now this passage has a lot of information and practical application to living in a world when the system turns itself against the Bible. When the system has now made it illegal to do the right thing. Pharaoh is a monarch. This is an absolute monarchy. He can make a law on the, in the moment. And he does. Kill the male boys. But these Hebrew women do not do it. Well, I just want to make a, an application of this very practically from the Bible. The Bible is clear that civil authority is from God. Romans 13 and other passages in the Bible tell us that all authorities of God, the powers of be are of God. And we should obey civil laws to the extent that they do not contradict or violate the higher law of God's law called the Bible. Amen. And when a civil command or law contradicts the Bible, then we are obligated to obey the higher law regardless of the consequences. That's called a conviction, not a preference. And it should be done with respect to the higher law, not out of rebellion to the civil law. The Jewish people, like authentic Christians today, understand the sanctity of life. We do not abort our babies at any point of pregnancy. When a lady who is a believer makes a moral mistake and becomes pregnant, or when a married couple have an unwanted pregnancy, unplanned pregnancy, we do not value the life or the choice of the mother above the choice of the, the, the baby doesn't have a choice over the right of the baby. We accept the consequences of our behavior and we respect the sanctity of life, the right to life of the baby. And I'm not here tonight to teach on abortion, but it's right here in this text, so I'm going to do it as we pass by because it is very important in our culture. We do not believe that a woman's choice supersedes that baby's right. And that baby in the mother's womb is not part of the mother's body. It is a separate entity 
in that body, but it is not the body. So she may have a right over her own body, but she does not have rights over the baby that God is allowed to be planted in her body. That baby has its own separate rights that supersede her rights to comfort. And I don't want to try to get into whatever exceptions people want to bring up because that is typically not the reason people abort babies. These midwives respect the sanctity of life. They do not fear the wrath of the king. They do not fear his commandment. And they let these baby boys live. And Pharaoh finds out about it. There's a bunch of little toddler boys running around Egypt. And he gets a report of that. And he calls them back in, verse 18 of Exodus 1. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing? And save the male children alive. Now there's multiple reasons why they did this. But one of the reasons uh, was what they gave Pharaoh. They said to Pharaoh, these Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are lively. They're healthy, vigorous. And they give birth before we can even get there. They got to help them and the baby's already born. So it would really be conspicuous if we kill the baby and try to pretend that it died in childbirth. You know, that would be the implication to me that they were supposed to make it look like the baby just died. So it sounds like they are saying that these Egyptian women, they lay around all day, they're weak, pampered. They've got all these Hebrew slaves taking care of them. When they get ready to have a baby, They've got long, long labor. I'm not preaching against long labor, whatever your experience is. I'm just telling the story of the Bible. So these Egyptian women, you know, Pharaoh, how long they're in labor, and it's a big ordeal, but with these Hebrew women, they're not like that at all. Very lively, very healthy. And these babies are born... Just like that, I, uh, years ago, I had thought about this, and I called my mom to verify, you know, the births of her four children. And my mom was like one of those lively mothers, and the miracle of that is, is my mother was not going to be able to have children because of a physical ailment, and she was supernaturally, miraculously, instantaneously healed when she was a teenager. And so it was a miracle that she could have any children at all, and that three of them would go into apostolic ministry was probably God knew something, and maybe, I don't know if the devil knew it, but God knew something. So I was born on October 17th, 1955. My mom was in labor two hours, and I was born her first baby, seven pounds, ten ounces. My sister Darla was born on March 21st, 1958. The labor was stopped by the doctor with medication because another emergency patient came in and she was born later, 7 pounds, 15 and a half ounces. Darren, my third, the third child, my brother, is a pastor in Miami, born on December 30th, 1959. My mom was in labor for 30 minutes. 8 pounds, 1 ounce. David, my baby brother that I named, by the way, before he was born, because David was my childhood hero, that slingshot guy in the Bible, you know, giant killer. I mean, it had to have it start with a D anyway, so that... Probably they just made me think that I named him. 
January 26, 1962. Dad was working, you know, back then. You didn't, things were so different. <clears throat> so my grandmother drove my mom to the hospital, dropped her off at the door, went and parked the car, and when she came in, the nurse congratulated her. <laughs> Congratulations, your grandmother. She said, wait, no, I just dropped my daughter off. Well, I know she's already had the baby. <laughs> Lively mothers. My mom told me she is uh, expecting me. She didn't get sick at all. I mean, that's not true for everybody. My wife's been sick with some pregnancies. And anyway, but she was in church going to the choir loft to sing when her water broke and she went to the hospital and had me two hours later. A lively mother. So here's these Hebrew women, man. They are strong, lively. They didn't mess around, you know, with long labor. They just, boom, babies are born everywhere. And Pharaoh's scratching his head and he's so upset about this. And the Israeli population is exploding and they don't know what to do about it because these Hebrew women are lively. So now that's the natural, right? So let's talk about the spiritual. I've been in churches. I've been in this church sometimes, 24 years, you know, when it seemed like spiritual labor lasted for hours, days, weeks, years. No babies are born at all. Dead churches. Lifeless churches. No babies. No, no one receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. No one being baptized in Jesus' name. No one being born into the kingdom of God. Like spiritually barren. Not just not able to bring to birth. Barren churches. Uh, my brother started a church in Miami. And he told me this story that for quite a while. And you know we stayed in touch as his church started in his living room. And he would have people coming to church. And they would pray and repent, but they were not receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost. That church was not a lively church. It was a church of brand new people. And so he would take those same people to my uncle's church in Fort Lauderdale. He had started that church, but it was a little farther down the road. And they would receive the Holy Ghost there. And I can't explain that. You know, several years ago, you've heard me talk about this before, but the first time we started the second service, it would have been the morning service back in 2005. It was a while before somebody received the gift of the Holy Ghost. Same people, same building. I can't explain that. When I came here in 1995, the beginning of 1996, we had several people receive the Holy Ghost right away. My memory says about 30, and then it just stopped. Boom, just like that. The spiritual maternity ward was silent, empty, and this church had to recover and get healthy again and lively again so babies could be born. My brother's church became a spiritual apostolic church where people received the Holy Ghost easily there. He's been there over 30 years, so it's not like it happened yesterday. But I've observed this in churches where we understand that it is not just a decision to accept Christ as your personal Savior. People are, are blinded by the darkness of sin. They are resisted by Satan. Receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost is a spiritual experience. It doesn't have to happen in a church, at an altar, 
My wife's mom received the Holy Ghost kneeling by her bed at home. My neighbor, Leslie Persler, received the Holy Ghost in her living room after I talked to her about receiving the Holy Ghost. You've heard that story before. You know, but people can receive the Holy Ghost anywhere, anytime. They are hungry for God and receptive. So I'm not, I'm not negating that. I think that's a wonderful thing. What I'm talking about tonight is us cultivating an environment where when God brings people to the birth, that we're lively. That we're not weak and pampered and anemic and slow to see people born into the kingdom of God. It should be natural. It should be powerful. It should be spiritual. In the days of King Hezekiah, as the nation of Israel was winding down in its last years before captivity, 2 Kings 19 and 2, it is using the same imagery of birth, but it is talking about Israel as a nation who has gone into moral and spiritual decline. He sent Eliakim, who was over the household, Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priest covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, And they said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this is a day, this day is a day of trouble and rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to birth, but there is no strength to bring them forth. Now, if there's something that is said in the spiritual, it has to have a natural counterpart if the Bible uses a, an example that is human or natural. So what is that all about? It's a picture of a woman who carries a baby. She conceives, she carries a baby to full term. She goes into labor. But in labor, she becomes so exhausted and so weak that the labor is paused. Now, all of our boys were born by cesarean section. I was there when they were born. But I've never watched my wife go through labor. So I don't, and I am not, I am a guy. So I don't claim to understand. I just read, okay? So I read and I, you know, and I ask questions. Medically, there are people here from the medical profession, it is called maternal exhaustion. Anybody ever heard that phrase? You raise your hand, you've ever heard of maternal exhaustion. Don't Google it now, but anytime you want, Google it. Find multiple sites that will tell you about maternal exhaustion. Sometimes labor can stop because of medication that, you know, too much anesthesia that stops the labor. But maternal exhaustion is a real thing. And pushing, and it says to ladies, you know, it's giving you advice online. Once pushing is continued for more than an hour, you may lose the strength to successfully deliver. In this situation, your doctor may provide some extra help to avoid complications. And there are several things that doctors can do. So can you imagine, you know, this sounds like an Egyptian lady. That labor is going to be protracted, painful, drawn out. It's going to be long, long labor. And some wonderful ladies have this happen to them. And then they hear a story down 
where all the Jewish ladies are, and they're having babies left and right, and the midwives can't even get there before the babies are born. And these women, good women, just women, are going through this maternal exhaustion, and they're ready to have a baby, but they're too tired to finish the process, and they have to wait. There may be a C-section. There may be other procedures that I won't go into that cause that baby to be born where the doctor helps, pushing and pulling at the same time. But, but here, let's talk about this in the apostolic church. And I want to talk about spiritual maternal exhaustion because that's what Hezekiah was talking about. There's something wrong in this nation, he says. We have come to the place where a baby ought to be born, but we just, we're just too weak to make it happen. We, we need a revival, but we're just too weak to have a revival. We know it's a promise. We know God has done his part. We know the baby's there. We see all the signs of birth ready to happen, but there's no strength, the Bible says, to bring it to the birth. And that is a concern to me as a believer and as a pastor that we would have people in our congregation that are stuck in the spiritual birth canal at belief or repentance or baptism and the environment of the church is not conducive toward them being born again. Now once again, I can answer all my own objections or your objections maybe. A person can receive the Holy Ghost if they want to, anytime, place. No one can stop them. And a church can be on fire, doing everything it can, spiritually lively, and there can be a person who either hasn't repented, won't open their heart, won't let the Spirit take over control of their life, and you can have everything powerful going on in the church and someone still not receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Through the years, the legacy of this church is when evangelists come, we don't typically see 20 or 30 or 40 people receiving the Holy Ghost at one time because we don't save them up. You understand what I'm saying? We don't wait four months or six months or every year till a special evangelist comes for people to receive the Holy Ghost. We believe it should be a normal action of the church. The Lord saved them daily such as should be saved in the Bible. We believe that they can receive the Holy Ghost Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, at work, at home, in the park, at the gym, wherever they're hungry, they can receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And we don't believe it ought to be that it has to be, uh, you know, Brother Josh Herring, who's mightily used of God to see people receive the Holy Ghost. We thank God for his ministry, and he'll be back here to preach again. And we thank God when he comes. He's a reaper, and I understand that. But when the church is lively, you understand where I'm coming from today, where I'm going with this, is why don't we make sure that we're doing everything in our power that if God trusts us with the person that is seeking God and they come into our midst, they come into this family, that we are not a hindrance, that we are not weak and lazy and spiritually not able to bring it to birth. We want to be a kind of a church where it is easy for people to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
You may remember what I said last Wednesday night, that in the messenger, one person of bridging a month received the Holy Ghost in that 30-day period at Atlanta West. In a church that has over 750 people on an average Sunday, I would say that that is not our goal. That's not acceptable for me as a believer. That's not what I would say something to pat ourselves on the back over. So I'm not here tonight to beat you up. I'm here to take responsibility personally. And I'm here to challenge you and encourage you with this illustration from the Bible that we should be a church where if a person is hungry for God, that there is no impediment on our part that would stop them from receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, that it is easy for them to receive the Holy Ghost here. Amen. Some churches have what are called chronic seekers. That's not always the fault of the church. Something in them, lack of repentance, uh, could be, you know, they're introverted, shy. It's hard for them to just release and let the Holy Ghost come, as I mentioned a while ago. And uh, there are so many factors here. I'm not trying to, you know, close every loophole, answer every objection, or deal with every possible issue here tonight. I'm here to help us be more lively. Okay? Amen. But I've been to churches where it had been a long, long time since someone received the gift of the Holy Ghost. It was kind of a spiritual, maternal exhaustion of the church. I've shared this here maybe through the last 24 years at least once. We were a part of a church. The pastor was leading that church to become a charismatic church. We wanted to leave but we felt like we might ought to stay and pray. And uh, the king's clown, Lloyd Squires, was there preaching a children's revival. And not one child received the Holy Ghost in a children's revival. But the king's clown, he could pray this speaker through to the Holy Ghost, right? And after church, we're sitting on the altar steps. And he looks at me and he says, man, DJ, I cannot believe Sorry, DJ, I've been called DJ a couple times in my life. I said, man, DJ, I don't understand. I mean, not one kid has received the Holy Ghost. And I said, Brother Squires, I cannot remember the last time a person received the Holy Ghost here. Whenever the Holy Ghost starts moving, this is a worshiping legacy church, great history, the pastor kind of winds it down, dumbs it down, calms it down. Doesn't want to get too wild and crazy. Don't want to embarrass anybody. Want to make sure we're sophisticated and we're not going to run anybody off. Well, you choose who you lose. If you want to lose people who aren't hungry for God, then that's just, a, just, just part of it. But if somebody's hungry for God, a genuine move of the Holy Ghost... If it runs them off, it won't run them off for long because God will deal with them and they will come back. They may think we're crazy, but when they walk away, the Holy Ghost will have gotten a hold of them and they'll say, there's something there that I need. So do not be afraid and do not be ashamed of a genuine move of the Holy Ghost. And if somebody gets out of line, we'll deal with them with patience and kindness. 
all right? But wildfire is not a problem here. I'll just tell you that right now. We're not worried about wildfire. We need a little more fire. There are some things that cause maternal exhaustion in a church. Sin among the saints causes maternal exhaustion. I know the Bible said if we have no sin, we're a liar. The truth is not in us. But if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You should not allow sin to build up in your life. The definition of a good Christian is not someone who sins every day. We've been set free from sin. Sin should be the exception. And the Bible said that moral sin should not be named even once among you. There's some things that we battle with in our lives, but there's things that we should overcome and not deal with. Sin is not the rule for the Christian that is mature. It is the exception. And if you sin, confess it. Don't harbor it. Don't let it stay in your life. Deal with it instantly. Don't dare walk on a platform or in a classroom or behind a soundboard or a camera or an offering basket or a golf cart with unresolved sin in your life. Deal with your sin issues. Repent and get right with God and make sure that sin is not an impediment to being a lively church. Cleanse your hearts. Sin stopped Israel from having victory at Ai, temporarily stopped the progress of the church until Ananias and Sapphira were eliminated. And if we have victory at this church, it takes a, a continual cleansing from sin, regardless of where that sin is. Lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Let's get in this race. Amen. The lack of prayer and fasting results in maternal exhaustion. Anemic prayer, passive prayer, infrequent prayer, mousy prayer makes for a Unlively church, unlively, a weak church. Praying in the Spirit, intercessory prayer, powerful prayer, ignites worship. You've heard it a hundred times, maybe, now a hundred and one. But the incense of worship in the Bible was to be ignited by a coal that came off the brazen altar that was a place of death, repentance, and getting in a right relationship with God. And worship that is kindled anywhere else is called strange fire. And that's why Nadab and Abihu were killed by the Lord because their worship was not birthed out of prayer and a right relationship with God. It was excitement and motion and activity, but it was not birthed in integrity. So our worship should be birthed out of prayer, and worship should be with all of our heart. Amen. Get to that a little bit later. Worldly preoccupation causes maternal exhaustion in the church. Now, I have enough sense to know that life takes a lot of time. Living, driving, working, taking care of your family, 
I'm not preaching against that. Believe it or not, I'm a pretty busy person. And it's not always because I'm just praying or studying for a sermon. I understand a little bit of what your pressures are and stressors are. I am not minimizing them, nor am I trying to preach down to you and telling you to get a life and get spiritual. This is where we all live on planet earth. All right? But God has never expected of us something we could not give. So preoccupation. Caught up in work, personal pursuits, sap our strength, burn ourselves out, not leaving anything to bring to the Lord. I've told before years ago about my friend Kenneth Benson, a psychology teacher, that I had the privilege of sitting in his classroom and then later baptizing him in Jesus' name and seeing him receive the Holy Ghost in the water. But Kenneth and his family, Presbyterian, wonderful people, 5.30 on Saturday night, they started shutting everything down because they were going to church on Sunday and that was the most important day of their life. And I think... A lot of good, wonderful people, I know it's your day off, I know it's a family day, it's a work around the house day, it's an important day for many people if you have Saturday off. Some of you do not. And I understand the importance of that day. But if you think about this, if we come to church, we haven't had time to pray. We're exhausted. We're preoccupied. We have a thousand things on our mind. We haven't prepared our mind to come to church and give God our best. No wonder there are babies that are ready to be born, but nothing happens. Preoccupation. And by the way, in my notes it says with the parentheses, I'm talking more about Sunday than Wednesday. I know some of you are doing good just to be here right now and stay awake and wondering when I'm going to quit. Not quite yet. Thank you for being here. That's why I said that at the very beginning. I have great respect for you for the commitment of your time to be here tonight and every Wednesday. If you spend all day long, talk radio, world of music, media videos, entertainment that pulls you away from God, no wonder you can't get in the spirit on the Lord's day. There's a lot of good things that are just excessive in our lives and we don't prepare our hearts to the Lord. And I've taught and preached about that through the years. It's important to prepare yourself for worship. Prepare yourself for God when you start your day and when you come to church. By the way, we have prayer rooms and they're open before church on Sunday. And in my notes it says I'm not berating you for being a human being or working or having a hobby or an interest. I do too. Just want to let you know it's in my notes, right? I'm not just feeling guilty right now. And I wouldn't dare you, I wouldn't dare make, try to make you feel guilty for spending time with your family or involved in wholesome entertainment. But fundamentally, whatever displaces my love for God is an idol in my life. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? Distractions cause maternal exhaustion. Told you about my mother expecting my sister this lady came in, the mother had chicken pox. She was about to give birth. They were very worried. They gave my mom medicine so she would go out of labor. I think there are people that when they come to church, they get some kind of a shot that makes them get out of labor. Like they were, you know, we we're about to go into labor and have a baby, and then all of a sudden the labor stops. What was that? Well, we started, we got a shot of Shoney's. Or, no, not that. 
Life's too short. <clears throat> Only so many meals. Be careful where you spend them. <clears throat> but we have a lot of things that happen to us to just stop our labor pains, you know. Think about this. We're in church. I'm talking mainly about, mainly about Sunday. We're coming to the altar. And, and whatever it is for you, maybe it's looking at other people out of curiosity or criticism or gossip or judgmentalism. And, you know, you've heard me say, be where you're at when you're there. But, you know, where are we going to eat? And what time are we going to get there? And is the restaurant going to be crowded? Or is the roast burning home? And who am I going to talk to after church and after the altar service? And what am I going to do tomorrow? And i got to look at my task list. And oh, look at that worship team walking up there. And they're getting their microphones. And, you know, a million distractions. I mean, we're the most distracted generation in the history of the world. It's proven sociologically. We're just super distracted. We need to minimize our distractions of going in and out of church, out and in and out and in. When babies are crying and you can't console them, please take them out to the foyer, to the, to the, the family room, right down the hallway on the right if you don't know that. You know, not immediately. We love children here. But then we, we need to try to, to pay attention. You know, and paying attention costs you something. My friend told me one time he was so poor he couldn't afford to pay attention. That's poor. Our, our minds, you know, maybe I'm just preaching to myself. Our minds wander. You know, this is, phone buzzes. It's, a, it's, a, it's an important news alert on your phone. It really is nothing. Or it's a game Lincoln downloaded on my phone that I'm supposed to go play that game and get a coin or something, you know. Now think about what happens in church, seriously, right? Checking social media, news feeds, checking the news, checking scores. What a night to say that. I did not pray against anybody today. I don't do that. Checking texts, checking emails, texting someone else that's in the building, distracting them. Sometimes I have to send a text, it's an important work thing, or it's about church, you know, but that, that's kind of no, I'm not saying you're going to be lost over that, but, but that's a distraction. That's why babies have a hard time being born in a distracted church. I've been thinking about trying to, you know, have a, an app that you download when you walk in the door at church, that when somebody opens their phone, there's a, like an electrical shock that hits them. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I like it. Because it might be the most spiritual. Some of you have looked in a long, long time. You know, I kind of like that idea a lot. If I could get you just to do something, you know, right? <laughs> be awesome. A mild shock, of course. Amen. If we, were, if we were competing for an earthly crown, the Bible says, they, they, they give themselves to winning the prize, right? And Paul said, the thing we're after is much better than that. It's not just a wreath that we're going to put around somebody's head. This is an eternal prize. 
But can you imagine a professional sports team leaving a player on the field who was just kind of like, you know, checked out, not paying attention. And they're going to pull that person off the field because they're, they're hurting the chances of winning. They want somebody to be fully engaged with this. Passive worship is a sign of spiritual weakness. I've already kind of talked about this earlier, but pretty Pentecost is pathetic and it is barren. Amen. You know, get your moves down, you know. This is not our church. I despise this. I think it's okay. You sing your best. Sing really well. Sing really well. Sing with the anointing of the Holy Ghost. Focus on people. You know, you're singing to people. You're leading them into the presence of God. You're not singing to the light. You're singing to people and for the glory of God. We're engaging them just like I am right now. I'm preaching. I'm communicating. I'm trying to draw you into a spiritual reality and into a connection with God. And, but worship in the audience should be with our whole being, lifting our hands and raising our head toward heaven and raising our voices to the Lord. Wiggle your toes, your fingers, jump, shout, run, move, do something because worship is your whole being. I like to sit around and think with the best of them and make notes and ponder and meditate. You know, I'm kind of a reflective person. One of my favorite words is ponder. I like to think about stuff. But when I'm at church, that's not time for that. It's time to enter into his gates with thanksgiving, into his courts with praise. It's time to shout unto God with a voice of triumph and lift your voices and play with excellence and sing and shout. This is a place of, that's got to be alive. Amen. Back in the day, believe it or not, I used to be a worship leader. I'm not a cheerleader. I don't like doing that. Rah, 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 you know, Jesus. That's not how, I don't even, I don't even want that. But when people haven't been praying, sometimes you feel like you've got to wind them up, right? But when people have been praying and people come into the presence of God and then this, this coal off the brazen altar ignites worship and all of a sudden there's something very powerful in this room and it is so lively that when somebody's hungry for God during the worship service, they're receiving the Holy Ghost sitting back next to you. When the altar call is given, they don't even make it to the front. They're receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost because it is a lively church. A lively church. And again, I want to say that I'm not just talking about going through the calisthenics of worship. That the motions are being birthed by something that's going on inside of you. So if I'm jumping, I'm not just doing it to jump. I'm jumping because I feel the Lord inside of me. And he is worthy and I love him. <laughs> Praise God. Sterile altars are a sign of maternal exhaustion. Wearing out the saints of the Most High God. And in our altar calls, I'm going to be very practical here. Unless you really need to excuse yourself for a moment and come back in the sanctuary. You know, if we're asking people to come to the altar to find the Lord, and you're walking out of church, and I've had to walk out of church and come right back in before, but it sends a message. I know there are people 
It doesn't matter if we said there's a million dollars laying on the altar for the first person. They would not walk out of that seat for a million dollars. They're going to stay. And, and if new people, uh, people that aren't connected, you know, I've not beat anybody up over not coming to the altar. But, you know, everything I do, you think, well, whatever the pastor does or the worship team does. You know, by the way, people are looking around at you and your response and if I preach and say Jesus' name, baptism, and you say amen, they go, what's that? Jesus' name, baptism. Everybody out here believes that. They said amen just now. What is amen anyway, right? If they're a total new to Christianity, and they'll figure out that amen must mean something that these people agree with what that guy just said. Now, I don't want you to, to minimize the power of your prayer, of your worship, of your body language, of your actions... The entire worship service, and I know church is not all about what happens in church. The church is you. We are the church. This is a worship experience service. It's not all about this, but I am specifically talking about this right now. The important business of bringing people into the kingdom of God is why we exist. Repentance causes heaven to rejoice, and we want people to be here at our lively altar. So if you would please... Come as close as you can. Leave room in the aisles for others to come. And look for people who have a need. Most of you come to the same spot. You know, you can mark it with a little dot. and You're going to be within an inch of that. But just fine. I'm not against that. Wherever it is, third row, fifth row, over this side. You know, we're, just, we're creatures of habit. And I've known, you know, I've known ministers before. You know, they're going to try to shake things up and get everybody more spiritual. Okay, well, everybody over here, go sit over here. And all of you over here, go sit there. We're going to, like, fruit basket turnover. That is not going to make us more spiritual. It might make you mad, but it's not going to make you more spiritual. So, it, and we have seats all over this building, so we're not going to say that if you're not sitting up on the front row, you're just about to split hell wide open. You know, you sit wherever you want, but wherever you sit, make that your sanctuary. Make that the place where you engage with God. Amen? So anyway, back to the altar. Come to the altar and look for people with the need and introduce yourself to them. And we tell our altar workers about 5,000 times, stand in front of the person you're praying with. Introduce yourself to them and ask them if there's something you can pray with them about. Meet them at the point of their need. And if you see spiritual hunger, then lead them to repentance, to receiving the Holy Ghost, to baptism in Jesus' name. Don't coerce them. Don't force them. Don't get in their space. You know, I ask permission. If I can lay my hand on a guest's head, I don't just assume that I can do that. If I'm ready to pray for them to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and I don't have time to do a whole altar worker seminar right now. People can receive the Holy Ghost anywhere, but for us, the altar area is like our birthing room. It is like labor and delivery. And many times at the end of a sermon, a message, we're going to invite people to come and pray, to repent, to consecrate. But before we leave, and we need to get better at this, and we're working on this, we want to leave with rejoicing and power and praise. You've heard evangelists say this before, that it's important to repent. You cannot receive the gift of the Holy Ghost without repenting. 
But when you receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, it will be after you have repented and you begin to worship God and start praising Him and thanking Him for forgiving you of your sins. So we tell people to repent until you've really cleaned your heart out and then stop repenting and begin to worship the Lord to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And if you feel the music go up, we're not just trying to get you worked up. We're trying to create an environment that is transitioned from prayer and repentance to worship and praise so people can connect with God in a supernatural way. Sometimes it is healing. Sometimes it is a member that needs to be renewed in the Holy Ghost. Sometimes it's a person that's been beat up all week. They're going through a trial, and they need a real breakthrough and help from the Lord. And we don't want them to be the conspicuous person that no one is praying with. We want to be a lively church. Think about this. What if we had a church that like a business had a brilliant business plan, compelling marketing, masterful merchandising, stellar employees, friendly, courteous, and all of that. And all that was done, but they had no point of sale. Nobody ever made a purchase. They just came and marveled at the merchandise and employees and, wow, what a great store. When they came and went, That business is going out of business. And for the church, for the church, there are a lot of things that we consider to be wonderful and good and wins. The fact you came to church tonight, if you learned something, if you're better because of it, that's a wonderful thing. But our point of sale is conversion. It is that a sinner who is on his way or her way to hell got in touch with you got in touch with him, turn from their sins and repentance, baptize in water in Jesus' name, fill with the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, the new birth experience, John 3, Acts 2, Acts 8, 10, 19, all over in your Bible. And when they walked out the door, they were a new creation in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of things we do as a church But that is the reason we exist. And if we cease to fulfill our mission as a church, we cease to have a reason to exist. And there are tens of thousands of churches. The life of the church is like a little hamster running around on the wheel. wheel, doing the same thing over and over and over and going nowhere. Slowly, surely dying. It is my passion that we always remain a lively church. And if we are not as strong and healthy as we should be, that we don't just diagnose it, we change to become what God has called us to be. It's one thing to look in the mirror and say, Oh my goodness, look at me. James talks about this in the Bible. But a lot of people walk away and they forget what they saw and they don't make any changes at all. James said, you're blessed. 
James says this in your Bible, that you're blessed if you see who you are and then you do something about it. And as a pastor, I cannot look in the mirror of who we are and look at what God is doing and what he wants to do and just pat ourselves on the back and say, what a great church. This is a, by the way, this is a great church. I don't just mean a good church. And I think you know I'm not like a flattery kind of person. Your commitment to missions, this recent She's for Christ offering, say, what's the big deal about an offering? It's called the Bible. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When people give like that, their heart is not somewhere else. It is in the kingdom of God. So I commend you. I, I, that's a language of commitment that I love and appreciate. If you don't mind, please stand. Worship team's coming. Our mission is to lead people out of darkness and into light, out of sin into a life of holiness, out of hell and into heaven. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, if people are busy birthing and nourishing, nurturing spiritual babies, they're a whole lot less likely to be petty, complaining, backbiters, gripers, murmurers, critics, because they're trying to make it better, not point out that it's not what it should be. If you're critical and you do something about it, wonderful. But if you're criti critical just to take the attention off yourself and point the finger at someone else, you could be a hypocrite, you could be self-righteous, but you're certainly not contributing to us being a lively church just by that. Amen. Isaiah 66, I'll just get to high point. On the screens, Isaiah, let's go all the way quickly to Isaiah 66, 7. And there's a context that I'll skip for time. Before she was in labor, she gave birth. And before her pain came, she delivered a male child. The end of verse 8, Isaiah 66, For as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her children. There's a time the Lord speaks about in Isaiah 66 that sounds like Exodus chapter 1. But oh my goodness, there's God is going to do something in Israel. And you can study this passage. It points ahead to the church dispensation that God is going to do something so fast. It's going to blow everybody's mind. So I thought they just went into labor. They're already holding the baby. Yeah, God said I can do that. But he does that when it's a lively church. If it's not too late for you, I know many of you have super early mornings. I respect that. But if you have a few minutes to come and pray with me, as you gather with me at the altar, and let's ask the Lord to help us become a lively church so that the Lord can use us to bring new people into the kingdom of God. I'm going to ask my media team to help me with one more verse. Isaiah 66, 9. They can keep playing. Media, if you can go back to Isaiah 66 9, if you haven't closed that program yet. The Lord asks a question Shall I bring to the time of birth and not cause delivery, says the Lord? Shall I, who cause delivery, shut up the womb? The Lord said, I just want to tell you something that if I bring somebody to the point of birth, if it's up to me, it's going to happen. 
So I want you to know that God has made us a promise and I want to go after that promise to be a church that he can work through to see people come into the kingdom of God. Let's just lift our voices in worship right now. Would you do that?